This week on Geek Explained, we're catching up on one of the best books of 2022 as I put the Geek Explained spotlight on Cliff Chang's instant classic, Catwoman Lonely City. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is the latest installment of our Geek Explained Spotlight series, where every single month I take a specific comic book, graphic novel, miniseries, whatever from the world of comics and talk about why it's so freaking good. And this month we are putting the Geek Explained Spotlight on one of the best books of 2022. That's right, I'm coming. A little late in the game here, but I really wanted to do this episode once I finished reading it. It's Catwoman Lonely City by Cliff Chang. Essentially, the elevator pitch for this is it's Catwoman's Dark Knight Returns. One last job, uh, trying to recapture some of her past glory and also trying to get closure. Uh, This book has been rightfully praised by literally everyone who's read it and I was able to finally get my hands on it and read it and here we are. I'm going to be gushing for the next however long it takes to talk about why it's so freaking amazing and why you should also read it. Uh, we also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, so make sure you stay tuned after the jump for that. But without further ado, let's go ahead and roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will, as I put the Geek Explained spotlight on Cliff Chang's Catwoman Lonely City. How much would you give up for a chance at closure? That's the question that Selena Kyle finds herself asking in this month's Geek Explains Spotlight, Catwoman Lonely City. And Selena's been through a lot. She debuted in Batman number one way back in 1940, and Selena Kyle has been through the ringer for years and decades and several different lifetimes, depending on which continuity we're talking about and what story we're going through. But the main factor and the thing that has carried through Selena's entire, let's say, comic book publication history is that Selena loses. She loses a lot. Loses people, loses heists, loses money, and... In the story Catwoman Lonely City, we find a Selina who has lost literally everything. And how do you come back from that, especially when you have unfinished business? Catwoman Lonely City was a story that I have been 
really excited to dig into. I heard rave reviews about it all through last year, and I unfortunately wasn't able to read it as it was coming out. But thankfully, I got the big old prestige hardcover here. Thank you, Barnes & Noble, for your 50% off hardcover sale. And, I mean, it's a gorgeous story. And not just because the art is gorgeous, because it is. But the story itself is defined by loss, and it is defined by what you do after you have lost. Uh, the premise of the story uh, digs into Selena's history as a character, as a Batman villain and sometimes a hero, and the complicated relationships that she has cultivated throughout her time and her career as noted cat burglar and jewel thief Catwoman. And the premise goes like this. Ten years ago, the massacre known as Fool's Night claimed the lives of Batman, the Joker, Nightwing, and Commissioner Gordon, and sent Selina Kyle, the Catwoman, to prison. A decade later, Gotham has grown up. It's put away costumed heroism and villainy as childish things. The new Gotham is a cleaner, safer, and a lot less free under the watchful eye of Mayor Harvey Dent and his Bat Cops. It's into this new city that Selina Kyle returns, a changed woman, with her mind on that one last big score, the secrets hidden inside the Bat Cave. She doesn't need the money, she just needs to know who is Orpheus. And that really just is the tip of the iceberg for this story. Um, I remember it being presented to me when I was speaking to somebody about it as the Dark Knight Returns for Selina Kyle, which is the elevator pitch. It's all you need to know about it to understand what's going on with it. It's a Selina Kyle who is past her prime as a costumed... Well, we'll just say anti-hero is the closest thing that can define her. And... It's every bit as heartwarming, as tragic, and as beautiful a story as that original Frank Miller classic. And to me, a lot of it is due to the absolutely insane talent of one Cliff Chang. Now, Cliff Chang does the art. He does the writing. This is... Much like a Daniel Warren Johnson piece, 100% the vision of Cliff Chang. He came to this idea of telling a Catwoman story, and he seems like the person who is best suited for that world, and for telling a story featuring one of, I think, the most compelling female characters in comics, and Cliff Chang is no stranger to compelling female characters. If you are familiar with Cliff Chang's work at all, you know that he was the, you know, the left jab to the right hook of Brian K. Vaughn's Paper Girls. That book would not be what it is without Cliff Chang on art. Uh, he was also instrumental in the Brian Azzarello Wonder Woman New 52 run, which... It does have its detractors, but one thing I don't think you can argue is the incredible visual language of that series. Taking Diana and reshaping her origin, that is for lots of people to debate, and I'm not going to get into that here, but one thing that I always loved about that story 
was the artwork. And also, one that I don't think gets as much love as it should, and hopefully we'll be getting more as the years go by, Judd Winnick and his run on Green Arrow Black Canary kicked off his run with Cliff Chang on art. If you have seen the cover art of Black Canary on a motorcycle and Green Arrow hanging off the back, that's Cliff Chang's art. So Chang has been around. Chang has been, I think, one of the stalwarts for not just comic book artists, but for me personally, an Asian American comic book artist. Someone who is very good at what he does. And someone who, anytime you see his name attached to a project, you know it's going to be a banger. And Cliff Chang has a talent for not just being able to... I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time articulating what I'm trying to say here. He, he has such a strong vision for his visual style. It's definitely... There's definitely a Cliff Chang style right and his the dna throughout all the projects that he's worked on is very strong but he also has this insane chameleon like talent of every book feeling different like yes obviously he drew both this and paper girls but they are very visually different and i think that has a lot to do with his perspective on the characters and every book that he works on that visual style is informed by the characters that it is um, it is being told through, which sounds incredibly basic. I recognize that. And it sounds like, yeah, duh, like a Punisher story is not going to look the same as a Spider-Man story. But you would be surprised how many comics, especially when it comes from the big two, have a very similar kind of homogenous style. And when you look at everything that Cliff Chang has worked on, you can see that, yes, it is definitely by the same person, but they all feel different. And that's something that I love about this story. Now, I'm going to do light spoilers. There, w there will be spoilers involved in this. I'm not going to give you, you know, the blow-by-blow, beat-by-beat, whatever uh, that I sometimes do with comics. But I do want to let you know that if you have not read this, I might spoil a couple things here and there. So just be aware of that. But getting into the thing that I think Cliff does so well in not just this story, but all of his stories, it's the characters. The characters are really where his stories always shine, whether it's something that he's collaborating on or something like this, where it's totally his vision. And having this insane cast of characters that he gets to work with on this gives me hope for Black Label books going forward, which I don't always get with Black Label books, because sometimes they're not great. And I think the argument, and I've given this argument before on the podcast, uh, it often feels like Black Label was specifically just made to be Batman stories because of the sheer amount of Batman, Batman-adjacent stories. It's almost become the Joker label for DC, it's like every sing it's like every 6 months we get a new Joker black label book and it's it's just so it's exhausting. It's really exhausting. But if we keep getting stories like this 
give me more black label books. Okay. And the story itself centers around a Gotham that is both familiar and at the same time, completely unfamiliar where we are witnessing a Gotham 30 years into the future, but not like a 30 years, like a Batman beyond 30 years from whenever now is it's this Gotham that has been put under martial law due to, as mentioned previously, the efforts of mayor Harvey Dent mayor two face is running the show with his privatized police force, AKA the bat cops, which are just the most terrifying looking things. Like these guys are decked out in a combination of Batman and SWAT armor. And they almost look similar to like, Oh, what are they? The, uh, the NCR from fallout. Very much a, a, a similar visual style between the two, especially when it comes to like the helmets, but they are running the show. And due to that, we see a large decline in not just the morale of the city, but also the architecture buildings are falling apart. Neighborhoods are in complete shambles because the local government is more focused on security than prosperity. And it's fascinating to get into the world building of this story because there is so much in it. Gotham City is this beautiful tapestry that in any given story you can draw incredible pictures with. And every Gotham City in a way can be different from the last when it comes to the different interpretations, the different stories that can be told within it. And the Gotham that we find here is this really interesting blend of a lot of different uh, iterations of Gotham. It is at the same time very, uh, I want to say very influenced very much influenced by a lot of the modern gothams you know the detroit of the bale franchise or any of the modern you know jersey uh chicago versions of this uh of this city but at the same time it's also absolutely influenced by some of the more romantic viewings of like New York, which Gotham was originally based off of. And at a certain point was where Batman was based out of before they created the fictional Gotham city. And there is a certain romance in this book when it comes to the architecture, when it comes to the settings, and there is not just a romance, but a reverence for iconic locations blackgate penitentiary even though it is often depicted in flashback and in black and white you know exactly what that is gotham at any point has the typical locales arkham asylum looks very familiar uh the monarch theater which we find a couple times in this story is exactly how you picture it and yet it is just slightly different at the same time there are little tweaks here and there to make sure you know that this is a gotham all in itself but at the same time paying homage to a lot of the gothams of the past and you could say that literally about everything in this story there's so many big swings that the story takes while also paying homage to 
the characters and the ideas that came before it. And I think largely we find that in the characters. So let's run down this list. I want to talk about some, some specific characters. Obviously, Selena is front and center. The, she runs the show. This is very much, you can read uh, Darwin Cook's Selena's Big Score and then read this directly after, and it can be absolutely a spiritual sequel to it, right? There is so much within how cook portrayed selena during his time with her that has kind of been ingrained into the character but at the same time cliff chang gets to put this stamp on her that we don't often see which is an aged seasoned selena we saw this most recently in the bat cat uh maxi series by tom king and it was it's always fascinating to me to see the older jewel thief archetype whether it's in comics whether it's in film or tv because there's something i've always found fascinating about that right it's this aged weathered person who knows that they have pushed past their limitations one too many times like there is a uh, recurring theme throughout this book of selena's knees because she's a cat burglar and she does flips and dives and all kinds of bendy acrobatic moves and at a certain point that starts to wreak havoc on your knees because as someone who has always had a bum knee for most of my life that shit is real and the more that you put your body through the more stress that that ligament and that specific body part goes through especially with how active selena is running on rooftops and such and so getting to have a selena that's largely untouched by a lot of comic book storytellers gives Cliff Chang the opportunity to get us immediately familiar in, in the shoes of Selena. This is a this is a more adaptable I think version of the character than we would see in a lot of different Selena stories where there is a specific, you know, they're trying to I don't want to say just copy and paste stuff that's worked before, but there's a lot of through lines, a lot of, okay, been there, done that when it comes to her portrayal, especially in her longer runs. But here we get to see a Selena who's kind of tired. We get to see a Selena who's at the end of her rope and is remorseful and is retrospective and is kind of nostalgic, which is always really fun. That's something that I've always loved about, you know, when we get stories with Batman's rogues where they get to kind of wax nostalgic a little bit or stories like uh, this past year with rogues, one of my favorite stories of the year where it's these older veterans who are like, Hey, you remember that time we knocked over the first street bank and then all of the, all of the lived in uh, dynamics that we get with these characters where they have worked with each other several times before and we get to see those relationships how they've evolved how they've changed uh i mentioned before harvey dent is a character who i think is very pliable when it comes to the stories that you can tell with him you can easily tell a story where he's trying to be you know trying to be better the, there have been several different attempts, even in the mainstream comics, to have Harvey go straight for a little while. They're really at the tail end of one right now over in Detective Comics. 
And then at the same time, you can have a story where he is this deranged lunatic who is, you know, who has a duo double two fetish. And this Harvey Dent is one that we have, I think, flirted with in the past. And that's a Harvey Dent who, post-Two-Face, returns to public office. He is reformed. He is uh, on the side of the angels, quote-unquote. And he has become mayor of Gotham City. This is very, very... uh, in some way similar to the Kingpin takes the New York mayoral position uh, over in Marvel Comics. But at the same time, the duality of Harvey Dent is on full display at all times. And not just because he hasn't gotten any plastic surgery to hide his two faces. He's also struggling in his own way to gain redemption for himself. He is trying to keep order and he is trying to bring stability to his new empire and not doing a very good job at it like he is once again more focused on security rather than prosperity and his efforts have not just not just driven people away but also helped to perpetuate this large gap when it comes to the different classes inside of Gotham. Gotham has been fascinating in recent years, and I think for me personally, this really kicked off with the first White Knight story. I did an entire episode on it. You can go back uh, to our first October series where we did Joketober, where I covered White Knight and the, uh, at the time, very new uh, treatment of the classism and the division in between the ideals of both Gotham's richest citizens and its poorest. And it's not like a, it's not a wholly new thing. White Knight wasn't the first story to do it, but it was one of those stories in the modern era that really shapes how we view Gotham in our adaptations and inside the stories that the comics tell. And so we get to see how disenfranchised much of Gotham is because they are being steamrolled and essentially kept under lock and key by this privatized military force. And the voice of that uh, of that disenfranchised group is one councilwoman, Barbara Gordon, who is fascinating in this story. We see in multiple flashbacks that um, that she was continuing her career as Batgirl at a certain point we have to assume maybe the killing joke happened maybe it didn't because we know that on Fool's Night the Joker died and in that story Barbara Gordon was still running around as Batgirl and she wasn't anywhere near the uh, the climactic confrontation between uh, Batman and the Joker and yet we see that she is still wheelchair bound so there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of like extra world building that again, I adore. I adore, you know, getting to dig into the lore of different adaptations of the stories and worlds that we know and love. And she is a councilwoman in Gotham who is running against Harvey Dent for the mayoral seat. Uh, this Barbara Gordon is also, I don't know if it's, outright said but it is both heavily implied and alluded to that she is in a relationship with her campaign manager and the two of them uh both women by the way it's a it's another uh queer 
uh, relationship, they have a young son who is named Wayne. And I love that. I really think it's it's something that we don't often see with Barbara because she is more or less always kind of attached by, you know, at the hip with Dick. But I didn't both figuratively and literally. And it's really cool to get that different version of her where it's absolutely still the same character. You just tweak something to tell the story you want to tell. It's cool. And I love it. Um, she's also, again, very lived in, very weathered, very world weary. And she is not super about Selena doing her Catwoman thing. But at the same time, she understands the need for disruption and for chaos and for challenging the status quo. She even at the end of the story, skipping ahead, she speaks with Selena in an effort to continue what she's doing to try and make the city a better place reviving in essence the relationship that her father had with batman it's a really cool journey for her to go through and for her to go on and one of i think the most striking images in the entire story is during the uh the Monarch Theater protest, where all these people who have donned uh, cat masks in support of Selena and her efforts to disrupt the status quo are being challenged by a large tank because, you know, police have a way of responding too heavily to protests, especially peaceful ones. I wonder what real-world basis that has. But there's this beautiful almost full page uh, spread of this tank with all of these bat cop soldiers on one side and standing atop that tank is mayor Harvey Dent. And on the other side, we see all of the cat protesters and Barbara in her wheelchair staring down the face of this tank. It is one of the most metal fucking images I've ever seen in my entire life. And Cliff Chang is super real for doing this uh there's also a great commentary on the usage of your platform to put a spotlight on issues that otherwise wouldn't get that attention right there's this whole thing where during that protest selena is being chased by bat cops barbara immediately is like get the fuck out of here like we'll protect you and then harvey calls in you know the bat cops to start open fire opening fire on these peaceful protesters and the footage that people are recording you know she gets yanked out of her wheelchair and forcibly arrested for not doing anything wrong but in the news coverage following it none of the news coverage mentions that harvey was there or that he was the one who ordered the cops to start shooting Barbara, on the steps of the courtroom, says this was an an outrageous and unjustified use of force. Imagine if I weren't a white woman in a wheelchair. Imagine what would have happened. And it's just the the story is very comic booky at its core, obviously, but it also takes the big swings into what is going on in our day to day. It is what you know, dude bros and people who don't actually read comics would say oh this is a woke comic it's 100% a woke comic if that's how you define it by introducing real world uh, 
concepts and conflicts and featuring a strong female lead, then absolutely, absolutely it's a quote-unquote woke comic. But what I love is that it doesn't shy away from that. It doesn't shy away from the real-world shit that is constantly going on in the background of these superheroic stories. And you get to see how much that affects everything that's going on uh you get to see characters who at one point were you know these monsters and these scoundrels and these people who were enemy number one how they've evolved past it and one of the best i mean one of my favorite characters in the story is killer croc our boy whelan jones who has become just this kind of drunk at the bar who just kind of like lounges around for those of you who are wrestling fans uh this is a role that was tailor-made for like an eddie kingston uh from aew he is he's basically eddie kingston killer croc and i absolutely love that two pieces uh he's really fun he's always down to help selena uh even though his you know his efforts kind of go before his thought process sometimes like when they're getting set up in their base in uh the in the i don't remember which hotel it is but he's just like I like getting dressed up. Why can't I go with you? And Catwoman goes, because you're a giant fucking crocodile. That's why. <laughs> uh, we get to also, as a quick aside, I mean, these Black Label books, I love that they swear. It's it's not something that we need in comics all the time, but in stuff like Black Label and more adult-oriented stories, throw them in! Throw swear words. I'm into it. It makes these characters feel more real and it helps the dialogue a ton to get you into these characters. Uh, Killer Croc, like I said, is a absolute blast to read. He's always like trying to reclaim his former glory. There's this big old... Uh, uh, there, there are a couple uh, montages where everyone's kind of getting ready for the heist. And we see that... Uh, Croc is focused intently on being the motherfucking king of Gotham. And he fully leads into him trying to uh, trying to reclaim some of that former glory. And every single time they introduce a new uh, character who we've seen before, they always do like a quick cut to like a panel of them in their classic state, which I really appreciate. It's a really nice, subtle touch. Um... And that goes doubly for characters who we, who aren't initially involved in the story. At the beginning, it's literally just Selena and Croc, and they're like, "We're gonna fucking break into the break into the Batcave on election night to give a big middle finger to Harvey Dent," and then their cast begins to grow. Very much Ocean's Eleven. Their their group begins to expand. Uh, we see. Eddie and Edie Nigma, the Riddler and his daughter Edie, which I absolutely love that it's Eddie and Edie. Uh, Edie is a world, world-class gymnast who has looked up to Selena her entire life. And it's really fun to watch Selena kind of toy with the idea of taking on an apprentice and her hesitation because she's like i'm not i'm not looking for a fucking robin i'm not into that idea and at the same time 
this relationship that kind of blossoms over the course of the story with Eddie is one that I did not expect. I did not expect. I was not ready for. There's this great, there's even this moment where, you know, they have both lost their spouses, right? Maybe, you know, Bruce, I think they talk about how Bruce and Selena never really tied the knot because there just wasn't time. But, you know, she lost Bruce. Uh, Eddie lost, I believe it was his wife. Uh, what was her name? Lorena. And now he has his daughter. And so the two of them begin talking and they begin like reminiscing when they run into each other. And there's a moment where Eddie even mentions, you know, like, hey, like you, what's what's the deal? And Selena is not exactly willing to open up as much as she would like to but as the story goes along and as we see them grow closer the two end up romantic partners and that was not something i expected to see especially when you dive into like a lot of modern uh batman comics especially if you look at something like um like batman killing time wonderful freaking comic go read it it's incredible another great tom king batman joint um the two of them are reluctant partners and they are incredibly antagonistic with each other. And they kind of always have been. So watching the Riddler who I in a million years would never expect to be invested in as a romantic partner for Selena freaking Kyle is just astounding in this story to watch how much he's grown, how much he, uh, put stock in valuing the two of them and their relationship and also their professional distance from each other. It's just really, really cool. And they are joined by poison Ivy who has set up like a whole, I think it's lady green bean, which is basically like a mashup between like coffee bean and tea leaf and Starbucks. At the same time, she is being a freedom fighter in Brazil against eco-terrorism. Like, I just, it's so cool, the world building they're doing with this. And they're also, they introduce, or they they reintroduce Jason Blood, who is the human counterpart of Etrigan the Demon, right? I just, what? Like, they not only take the time to build out the Gotham side of things, the more, like, you know, the, the more familiar criminal element but they also absolutely cash in on the superstitious and cowardly portion of the superstitious and cowardly lot by introducing magic and getting into you know the characters that are involved with that like there's a moment where they're finally breaking into the bat cave and they are they see that it's been enchanted. Like the door is constantly moving away from them because it's enchanted to be that way. And they try out open sesame as a code word. It doesn't work. And then Selena gets the bright idea. Wait a second. Say it backwards. And Etrigan, you know, does the open sesame but backwards, breaking the spell. And then we cut over to Vegas where Zatanna is do- has a residency. And she's like, what the hell? Like, she could feel that the enchantment was broken. I just, I love stuff like that. I love the visual cues like that. And also, 
during the final confrontation inside the Batcave, we are reintroduced to Clarion the Witch Boy, who is now Clarion the Witch Man. And the two, you know, Clarion and Jason Blood clash and they, you know, zap off to or Jason zaps them off so that they don't uh, bring the entire Batcave down on top of everybody. It's just a a fundamental understanding of the DC universe and this small corner of it and all the intersections of that small corner that I really, really appreciate. There's even a mention of LexCore where they go like, oh, uh, the you know, LexCore stock rose when they announced that they would no longer be building a headquarters in Gotham. And Harvey's just like, fuck! Like, God, I, I was banking on that for money! And it's just, the world building is top class. And I really, really, I really love it. They also uh, mentioned, like, one of the tools that they are planning on using in the heist is the original Green Lantern ring. Alan Scott's Green Lantern ring. But by the time that they find it, the ring is intact, but the lantern has been shattered in a previous crisis. And Selina has to call upon it to teleport her out of the sticky situation. And it's just so cool. It's so cool because it takes all of the things that we're familiar with when it comes to comic books and the wider world and puts it through the lens of the story. And I love that. And not just that, they also, again, involve real world uh real world concepts like hype culture there is this wonderful little shop on the far side of town in gotham that is run by a woman only known as og beast a little uh play on kg beast i'm sure but she runs essentially a a sneaker shop and her son winston is this you know elite computer hacker who is also deep into hype culture when it comes to superheroes like we see og beast is wearing a it's meant to be a play on supreme but the logo is superman i just as someone who enjoys uh you know streetwear and hype culture in my day-to-day life i love seeing it integrated into the story as well and og beast and winston are really fun winston you can tell is smitten with Edie almost immediately and seeing you know these two asian characters in this story made my heart sing it was really really cool um and all of that kind of feeds into the themes of the story itself this found family of the crew that they assemble gets you immediately invested in all of them and them as people. And so when they die, when people in that crew are lost, it hits even harder. And when those people, you know, are honored or the opposite in one case, you know, it really hits home and it really sells how dire the situation is for them uh the other themes i already mentioned the classism and gotham harvey and babs uh being involved in the story uh the themes of redemption not just for harvey like i already mentioned him trying to move past his two-faced persona and trying to be the best lawmaker and you know 
person in a higher office that he can be, but also Selena looking to get redemption for herself for feeling like she let down Bruce and Jim Gordon, who both died on that rooftop alongside the Joker. Uh, she is trying to not just get this big score, but she's also trying to find closure. And that's, I think, the biggest theme of this is loss and acceptance with Selena. She's trying, she's chasing this dragon of trying to make up the death of Batman, that she is blinding herself to what is already in front of her. And by the time that the story concludes, she is finally able to let it go. She's able to let what happened rest in the past so that she can look forward to the future. And it's a beautiful story about trying to forgive yourself and trying to find your purpose and your place in this world long after you feel like you've lost it. Um, a couple other things that I love about the story, the flexible canon that I, I just, I adore whenever uh, it's utilized in comic books. Uh, they did the same thing with White Knight where it's like, in a way, they kind of took the Grant Morrison approach where everything is canon in some sh way, shape, or form. And they feature a bunch of flashbacks that show off different eras of the uh, of Batman canon. Like, they show the first meeting between Selina and Bruce, and they're both wearing their Batman 66 costumes where, you know, it's, you know... Uh, Batman is very clearly, his costume is based on Adam West. Uh, Catwoman is very clearly based on Julie Newmar. And it's just really fun to see how much, not just the animated series, not just, you know, Batman 66, but also how other iterations of the comics have influenced the story. There's a great little moment where one of the, uh, a goon is basically like, what are you, Italian? Because of the story that revealed that uh, Roman Sionis was Selena's father in a different canon. And this one, thankfully, uh, also leans into the fact that Selena is half Hispanic. She's Cuban and Irish, and I really dig that. I really dig that they don't shy away from all pieces of these characters' histories and their adventures. Um, they also do a great job, like I said, with the uh, framing of everything. I love, again, the art is stellar. I can't gush enough about the art in this book. But watching how not just the city, but the characters change, how they seem to, in different ways, find joy in the ridiculous stuff from the past. Like, there's this whole thing where uh, she, it, it's, I believe, it's her, it, or it's Selena, it's uh, Edie, and it's Poison Ivy. They're trying to uh, nab this sacred mask from uh, this museum and Edie's kind of talking about how like she kind of missed you know all of the cackling and you know mustache twirling villainy and Poison Ivy's you know willing to feed into it willing to you know say little funny corny uh, villain dialogue but then at the same time like Selena's very against it she's very against it I'm flipping through right now. It's actually Eddie uh, talking about like, you know, he says, uh, this is kind of fun though, right? Just us three. I'm half expecting Robin to show up and say like, holy history buffs, Batman. And Poison Ivy's like, you'll soon find my blooms are as deadly as they are beautiful. And 
Selena's just not having it, right? She's not about it. But then she's unable to get the mask by herself, and she has relied on herself for so long, for the last 10 years in prison, that she has to finally admit and gain closure on the fact that she needs help. She needs friends. And when Poison Ivy and Eddie help her back up, she goes, you were perfect. And Poison Ivy's like, yes, that's my girl. And again, it's just the those touches and the love of these characters and their lore that really shines through in the story. And overall, it's just, it's a wonderful story. It's a story about love. It's It's a story about loss. It's a story about coming to grips with not just who you were but who you are and ultimately it is an instant classic it is something that i will be recommending to people for any time they want a good catwoman story anytime they want a good gotham city story anytime they want a good heist story or anytime genuinely they just want a good story because at the end of the day catwoman lonely city is that it is a wonderful story and over time i think people are going to look at this in the same way that people look at selena's big score which i find really interesting because this is almost a an answer a spiritual sequel, and also the response to the message of Selena's Big Score. Because, right, Selena's Big Score is the story about you can't trust anybody. Like, it, it's, it's in the vein of a lot of classic heist stories. Like, there's betrayal, there's this uh, overwhelming sense of dread and... Selena has to rely on herself, above all, to get the job done. Where he's here with Catwoman Lonely City, this is a story that's almost the polar opposite. This is a story that takes all of the lessons that Selena learned in Selena's Big Score. Which, again, I know it sounds like I'm, like, ragging on it, and it's that's not at all. I love that story. It is, before this, probably my favorite Catwoman story... But what this does is it takes the Selena that came out of that, right? It's not like a one-to-one, like this isn't a actual sequel to that, but it takes the Selena from that story who has become self-sufficient, who has become, you know, reliant on herself. She doesn't feel like she needs to uh, depend on people, and it teaches her that Sometimes you just need friends. She starts the story just out of prison, not really feeling like she can count on anybody. I mean, the opening of the whole story has her coming back to her old apartment and finding her cat for the first time and saying, like, you stayed after all these years, you're the only one. When by the end of the story, by the time you get to that back cover selena has finally realized that she can rely on people that she can uh depend on this support system that she has built over time and that's what i think people are going to take away from this what they're going to take away from this as not just uh selena's story but as a story overall because by the end of the story even though selena has gone through the ringer and she absolutely has she has gone through a lot she has been able to get through all of that because of the people in her life because of finding the strength not just in herself but also in her bonds in her relationships and at the end of the story when she looks out 
alongside Barbara Gordon, an ally who she did not really have at the beginning of the story, she finds that Gotham isn't such a lonely city after all. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown! This is the segment of our show where I'll chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we gotta take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And honestly, there were a lot of books that were in the running, but ultimately I chose the new champion of Shazam number four by Josie Campbell and Evan Doc Shaner. Uh, I love this book. Genuinely so much fun. The art was of course gorgeous. The writing is hysterical and I'm just really sad that we're only getting four issues of this. Um, it, I think it was a really, really great spotlight on the character of Mary Marvel or Captain Marvel or Shazam or whatever you want to call her. Uh, I just, I had so much fun with this book. I'm sad that we're only getting four issues um, because we are going back to uh, tried and true, going back to the well with uh, Billy as the champion of Shazam, I believe next month with uh, Wade and Mora. But I, I don't know. I wish this got more time to cook. I'm not sure exactly what the future of her story entails. The end of this book I thought was wonderful because it legit felt like the end of a season before she goes off to like the big CW crossover or whatever. But I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I hope we get more, uh, not just of Mary, but also from this team because I thought they were really, really strong. The voice that Josie Campbell had for Mary was great. And you know how much I love Shaner's art. He's one of the best in the game, one of my top five of all time. So uh, go back, pick this up. If you haven't picked up the rest of the series, it's only four issues. It's a ton of fun. Really, really strong strong, tight storytelling, and uh, I can't wait to pick up the trade whenever it comes out. But that's last week. This week, we've got 11 books for you to pick up, and starting off the list, I think rightfully, is Batman One Bad Day, Catwoman number one. This is written by G. Willow Wilson with art by Jamie McKelvey, two of my favorite creators, and I'm very excited. Last week's uh, one Bad Day Bane was just as strong as many of the uh, installments so far. This One Bad Day experiment, I think, has been really, really cool. And I would love to see this taken into other rogues galleries. Like, give us a uh, Superman rogues, or a Flash rogues, of course. Uh, Wonder Woman. I think there's a lot of narrative potential for a One Bad Day series with every villain, but uh, so far they've been really, really strong, and I'm excited to see what they have for Catwoman. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. No small scores. Selena Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, is the greatest thief that Gotham City has ever seen. She's effortlessly stolen countless items of immense value over the years and successfully evaded the GCPD and Batman. But when Catwoman finds out an item from her past is being sold for way more than it used to be worth, it sends Catwoman into a spiral, and she'll do everything in her power to steal it back. Batman tries to stop her before she goes too far, and a mysterious figure known as the Forger will change Catwoman's life forever. The all-star creative team of G. Willow Wilson and Jamie McKelvey unite for this epic story. 
yeah, I'm very excited about this. Should be a really, really good story. Next up, we have Justice Society of America number two. This is written by Jeff Johns with art by Scott Collins, Jerry Ordway, and Mikkel Janine. And I thought the first issue was very strong, setting up this mystery, and I... I just feel like it's been a while since that first issue came out because it is a Jeff Johns project, so it has to be delayed, of course. But I'm still very interested to see what they come up with here. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The New Golden Age, Chapter 2. New Friends, Old Enemies. The New Golden Age continues. Huntress has arrived in the present day, but the Justice League of America, no, the Justice Society of America, are not what she remembers. Can she get to the bottom of what's happened to the world's first superhero team? Will the Helmet of Fate hold the powers and the answers Huntress seeks? Yeah, so... Another stepping stone, like we said, we're we're early days in this uh, in this story, but I'm interested to see what they do next. Next up, we have Tim Drake Robin number five. This is written by Megan Fitzmartin with art by Riley Rosmo and Ricardo Lopez Ortiz. Uh, this book. As I've been saying every single month, has been a delight. Uh, they're doing a really great job at putting the spotlight on Tim Drake, and I really love that he's getting this. Agatha Christie, the spirit pulp noir uh, mystery detective story, and I'm hoping that we get more of them. I don't know how many more issues this arc is, but uh, I guess we'll find out. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Tim's mysterious new admirer slash nemesis is closing in, and they could be anyone. With everyone he trusts potentially compromised or in danger, the world's greatest Robin has no one and nowhere left to turn for help, except for himself. But can Tim Drake get out of his own way for long enough to catch up to a villain who seemingly knows everything about Tim down to the every way he thinks? Yeah, uh, I'm very intrigued. I can't wait to see what they have in store for us. Next up, we have The Sandman Universe, The Dead Boy Detectives number two. This is written by Pornsock Pachetshot with art by Jeff Stokely, and that first issue was fantastic. Absolutely loved it, had a great time, and I'm so excited to dive further into this. Uh, we talked about in the episode where we had Pornsock on about my unfamiliarity with the genre of Thai horror and if it's anything like what we saw in that first issue um, this is not for the faint of heart uh, I'm having a great time with it and I'm really excited to pick up the second issue let's, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis Edwin and Charles learn that finding the dame doesn't always mean closing the case when it turns out their, their new Thai ghost friends seem to be caught in the crosshairs of some dangerous enemies. Thankfully, the best thing about being a dead boy detective is that it's not like you can die again, right? Oh, ominous. Ominous. Next up, we have The Amazing Spider-Man, number 18. This is written by Zeb Wells with art by Ed McGinnis. This is continuing on the Dark Web uh, storyline, which I believe is wrapping up next week as of this recording. Uh, this has been really nice. I loved the Dark Web X-Men tie-ins. I thought those were really strong, even though I do kind of wish that it didn't uh, just come down to, well, Ben must be the problem. Uh, but I am still very excited to see what they have in store for the rest of this event, and uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. As if the normal run-of-the-mill demons of Limbo weren't enough, Spider-Man finds himself facing a small 
army of demonized versions of his rogues gallery. Can he make it home to stop Chasm and the Goblin Queen? Yeah, so this is really, I maybe it's because right now I'm like neck deep in Marvel's Midnight Suns. Great video game, do recommend. Um, but I'm loving all of the limbo and magic-y, magic-y horror demon stuff. I'm really enjoying this uh, event and I'm excited to pick up this next issue. Next up we have Lazarus Planet. We once were gods, number one. What a title. Uh, this is written by Dan Waters, Philip Kennedy Johnson, Josie Campbell, and Francis Manipal with art by Francis Manipal, Max Dunbar, Jackson Herbert, and Caitlin Yarsky. This is continuing on where we left off from Mary's story last week, and we're going to see how all of the magic people and magic-adjacent people are dealing with the Lazarus volcano erupting. I'm excited. This is one that I've been looking forward to the most out of the uh, Lazarus Planet one-shots, and I'm excited to see what they come up with. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Hunger Pains slash Songs of Pain slash Songs of the Dead slash Price of Eternity. As the Lazarus rain beats down upon planet Earth, human beings are only a fraction of those affected by this transformative upheaval. Enter, we once were gods. This series of vignettes explores Lazarus Planet's effects across the many extraordinary locations and creatures in the DC Universe. And like their human counterparts, these beings are in for some big changes. Can Themyscira survive the resurrection of every invading army that ever graced its shores? Will Martian Manhunter survive a psychic link to a doomsday nest? What happens when the monsters from the trench gain the ability to breathe air? And look out, Shazam family, the Rock of Eternity is about to get rocked. So yeah, I didn't even think of the Wonder Woman or Martian Manhunter connection, so I'm very curious to see how much everybody gets changed. This is one to definitely keep an eye on. Next up, we have Once Upon a Time at the End of the World, number three. This is written by Jason Aaron with art by Nick Dragota and Alexandra Tefenki. And I mean... This story rules. I love this book. I have been loving this book, and I'm very excited to pick up this next chapter. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Just as Maceo and Mezzi manage to find a touch of laughter and whimsy in the toxic hellscape they're traveling through, a gruesome encounter changes both of them forever. Even though Mezzi has been able to protect her naive companion so far, there is no shielding him from what comes next, an encounter with the nightmarish Wasteland Rangers. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be interesting. I've really loved the dynamic between Mezzi and Maceo, um, and I'm, I'm excited to see how it evolves over the course of this story. Next up, we have Exterminators number five. This is written by Leah Williams with art by Carlos Gomez. This is, unlike the last issue where I said it was the end, the actual end of the story, I believe. Unless they just keep it going, which I'm, I'm totally okay with. If they keep just adding on final issues until we get to like 25 final issues, I'd be okay with that. Uh, this story has been a ton of fun. I love these characters. I love this story. Story, and I love this creative team. That's why one of the reasons I'm really excited about all of the uh, Superman stuff is because Leah Williams has been uh, helming the new Power Girl stuff. Uh, that was one of the things that I loved about last week's uh, Lazarus Planet tie-in. And I'm very excited to continue on experiencing more of her 
kooky, deranged storytelling. I love Leah Williams. She's awesome. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. The final beatdown, or I should say, that's the final beatdown. These ex-ladies have been through one hell of a night, and it's not over yet. They They might have managed to escape the trouble that found them, but that trouble hasn't escaped them. It's time to make these suckers regret they ever crossed their paths. So yeah, this is the final encounter, the big boss battle, and I'm really excited to see what comes out of this. Next up, we have The Human Target number 11, written by Tom King, art by Greg Smallwood. I've been singing its praises for a good long while now, um... This is one of the best books that DC has to offer. It's certainly the prettiest book that DC has had over the last year. And uh, we've only got one more issue after this. And I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I've loved this book. The story of Christopher Chance has been an absolute delight. And I am very... I'm very nervous to see how they wrap the story up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Chapter 11. Kill, 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 kill. It's been 11 days since he was poisoned on a mission that went sideways, and Christopher Chance has finally solved his own murder. But is it too late to save himself? The penultimate chapter to the Eisner-nominated series will leave readers stunned. I can't wait! This is going to be incredible. Next up, we have a brand new number one. This is Sins of Sinister number one. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Lucas Wernick. And um, yeah, let's talk about Immortal X-Men last week, shall we? Um, This was a crazy, crazy uh, story. And I was not prepared for the... Uh, just the bonkers ending of that issue. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, there, I mean, there's a lot of directions that the story can go, right? Uh, Sinister has obviously been working very hard to seed everything that is going to come to pass in Sins of Sinister. And we found out there's another random player on the board in X-Men Red a couple weeks ago as well. So I have no idea what's going to happen here, but let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Powers of Essex. Oh, that's good. That's good. It's the end of the world as we know it, and at least Sinister feels fine. For now, can that last? Especially when we discover that he really is his own worst enemy. The universe-melting X-Event begins here, in a horror timeline that makes Age of Apocalypse look like the X-Men swimsuit special. Join Kieran Gillen as he kicks off the X-Men crossover Sinister has been planning since the beginning, and is going to have to see through to the bitter end. So this, I I was not prepared for this to essentially be uh, all of Sinister's machinations coming to roost, whether he likes it or not. But I like the premise of that, and I'm really excited to see how that shakes out. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is Action Comics number 1051. It all begins here! Uh, this is the first supersized issue. More pages, more action, more action comics. As the uh, cover is 
touting and promoting. Uh, this is the first big step into the Superman family side of the Dawn of DC, wherever they're going to go next. Uh, I, I've loved this cover since they unveiled it as the new Superman family, though I do have to mention what is going on with the hairstyles with John and my boy Keenan Kong. John's haircut in the original art was atrocious. I don't know what they were going for. But then they do this cover, and now John's got his normal haircut, but they shaved my poor boy's head! Why did they shave Keenan Kong's head? Why did they do that? Uh, I don't know, but... What I do know is that this book is written by Dan Jurgens, Philip Kennedy Johnson, and Leah Williams with art by Marguerite Savage, uh, Rafa Sandoval, and Lee Weeks. So excited. You know how much I love Lee Weeks. Lee Weeks is my boy. Um, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Speeding Bullets Part 1 slash Home Again Part 1 slash Head Like a Hole Part 1. Action Comics Reborn. Action Comics 1051 begins a new format for DC's most action-packed title, offering not one, not two, but three epic adventures of Superman and the entire Super Family. Following the bombshell events of Action Comics number 1050, the world's relationship with Superman is forever changed. The upper limits of his supercharged powers have yet to be reached, and the House of L's transformation of Metropolis, led by Steel, has begun. But Lex Luthor has found the perfect instrument with which to undo everything Superman is working to achieve. Metallo, whose hatred of Superman is matched only by his hatred for Luthor himself. Then, in Lois and Clark 2 Doom Rising, Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks return to tell the tale of a young John Kent on the farm with his parents learning about his abilities coming of age and battling the Doombreaker? What? Oh, man. Oh, I gotta finish this. I gotta finish the synopsis. And finally, Power Girl returns in part one of a three-part story spinning out of Lazarus Planet. This issue marks the first appearance of new characters, new costumes, and a new era of action comics. It all starts here. So yeah, really excited that Power Girl is getting the spotlight. I just mentioned in Exterminators, Leah Williams is getting to helm the character. Um, I'm really excited about this new status quo for Clark when it comes to um, the reveal that his identity is now secret once again due to Luthor. Metallo is always a personal favorite of mine when it comes to Superman's rogues gallery. But can we talk about Lois and Clark 2 Doom Rising? I, one of our first, and in my opinion, best Geek Explained spotlights that I've ever done for the podcast is on the Lois and Clark uh, comic that preceded the Superman Rebirth run. I love that book to death. Uh, and Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks are teaming up again for this. I'm so excited. I cannot wait to pick this up. This is going to be a great, great first start for the uh, new era of action comics. But that does it for this week's Comics Countdown. To recap, we've got Batman, One Bad Day, Catwoman number one, Justice Society of America number two, Tim Drake, Robin number five, The Sandman Universe, The Dead Boy Detectives number two, The Amazing Spider-Man number 18, Lazarus Planet, We Once Were Gods number one, Once Upon a Time at the End of the World number three, Exterminators number five, the Human Target number 11, Sins of Sinister number 1, and Action Comics number 
51. There are so many good comics to pick up this week. And really, even just in this group, there's literally something for everyone. So make sure you head to your LCS and pick up some amazing comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geek Explained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to us on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and subscriptions really do help me and the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space, raises up our stock, and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. I really want to read some new reviews. I want to kick this year off right, so send me your reviews. Five stars, and you can force me to basically read whatever you would like. Uh, And... Alongside that, you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Joshua Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, A-Lock and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag, send your emails to geeksplain at gmail.com and put mailbag in the subject header, and I will read it here on the Wednesday show. If you want to keep up to date with us, participate in polls that decide future episodes, or maybe you just want to shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news or whatever else is going on in the world of geek culture, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for as long as Twitter's still around. At uh, Geeksplained Pod, that's at Geeksplained P O D. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of chatter. So if you want to have conversations with me, that would be the place to do it. Finally, every single Friday is the Geek Explained Book Club, where I, alongside my amazing friends, Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, are going through some amazing comics. We just wrapped up season two last week, which went through the entire Brian Michael Bendis Ultimate Spider-Man saga from Ultimate Spider-Man number one all the way to Spider-Man number 240. Now, this week we are off this week. We are, there will be no Geek Explained Book Club, unfortunately. We are taking a break between seasons, but next week, next Friday, we are kicking off season three as we begin the saga of Grant Morrison's Batman. So make sure you tune in for that next Friday. Uh, Be there or be square, not a circle. It's going to be a great time. And I am very excited to dive into this series with Malcolm and Jacob. But that is going to do it for this week's episode. And that's going to do it for January of 2023. I feel like this month blew by. And now we're already in February. So next week, we're going to kick off February the right way. It is time, ladies and gentlemen, and our non-binary pals. We are... Very quickly approaching the release of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. And so, I think it's about time we talk about the villain of that film. So next week, join me as I geeksplain Kang the Conqueror. His entire comic book history, comics you should read, and why you should be excited that he is going to be the main big bad of this upcoming phase of the MCU. So join me for that next week, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for the Geek Explained podcast, I've been Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, and we will 
See you next time. <laughs>